Section 1 of The Theory of the Leisure Class. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anna Simon. The Theory of the Leisure Class by Thorsten Veblen. Chapter 1. Introductory. The institution of a leisure class is found in its best development at the higher stages of the barbarian culture, as, for instance, in feudal Europe or feudal Japan. In such communities the distinction between classes is very rigorously observed, and the feature of most striking economic significance in these class differences is the distinction maintained between the employments proper to the several classes. The upper classes are by custom exempt or excluded from industrial occupations and are reserved for certain employments to which a degree of honour attaches. Chief among the honourable employments in any feudal community is warfare, and priestly service is commonly second to warfare. If the barbarian community is not notably warlike, the priestly office may take the precedence, with that of the warrior second. But the rule holds with but slight exceptions that, whether warriors or priests, the upper classes are exempt from industrial employments, and this exemption is the economic expression of their superior rank. Brahmin India affords a fair illustration of the industrial exemption of both these classes. In the communities belonging to the higher barbarian culture, there is a considerable differentiation of subclasses within what may be comprehensively called the leisure class and there is a corresponding differentiation of employments between these subclasses. The leisure class as a whole comprises the noble and the priestly classes, together with much of their retinue. The occupations of the class are correspondingly diversified, but they have the common economic characteristic of being non-industrial. These non-industrial upper-class occupations may be roughly comprised under government, warfare, religious observances, and sports. At an earlier, but not the earliest, stage of barbarism, the leisure class is found in a less differentiated form. Neither the class distinctions nor the distinctions between leisure class occupations are so minute and intricate. The Polynesian islanders generally show this stage of the development in good form, with the exception that, owing to the absence of large game, hunting does not hold the usual place of honour in their scheme of life. The Icelandic community in the time of the sagas also affords a fair instance. In such a community there is a rigorous distinction between classes and between the occupations peculiar to each class. Manual labour, industry, whatever has to do directly with the everyday work of getting a livelihood, is the exclusive occupation of the inferior class. This inferior class includes slaves and other dependents, and ordinarily also all the women. If there are several grades of aristocracy, the women of high rank are commonly exempt from industrial employment, or at least from the more vulgar kinds of manual labour. The men of the upper classes are not only exempt, but by prescriptive custom they are debarred from all industrial occupations. The range of employments open to them is rigidly defined. As on the higher plane already spoken of, these employments are government, warfare, religious observances, and sports. These four lines of activity govern the scheme of life of the upper classes, and for the highest rank, the kings or chieftains, these are the only kinds of activity that custom or the common sense of the community will allow. Indeed, where the scheme is well developed, even sports are accounted doubtfully legitimate for the members of the highest rank. 
To the lower grades of the leisure class certain other employments are open, but they are employments that are subsidiary to one or another of these typical leisure class occupations. Such are, for instance, the manufacture and care of arms and accoutrements and of war canoes, the dressing and handling of horses, dogs and hawks, the preparation of sacred apparatus, etc. The lower classes are excluded from these secondary honourable employments, except from such as are plainly of an industrial character and are only remotely related to the typical leisure-class occupations. If we go a step back of this exemplary barbarian culture into the lower stages of barbarism, we no longer find the leisure-class in fully developed form. But this low barbarism shows the usages, motives, and circumstances out of which the institution of a leisure class has arisen, and indicates the steps of its early growth. Nomadic hunting tribes in various parts of the world illustrate these more primitive phases of the differentiation. Any one of the North American hunting tribes may be taken as a convenient illustration. These tribes can scarcely be said to have a defined leisure class. There is a differentiation of function, and there is a distinction between classes on the basis of this difference of function. But the exemption of the superior class from work has not gone far enough to make the designation leisure class altogether applicable. The tribes belonging on this economic level have carried the economic differentiation to the point at which a marked distinction is made between the occupations of men and women, and this distinction is of an invidious character. In nearly all these tribes, the women are, by prescriptive custom, held to those employments out of which the industrial occupations proper develop at the next advance. The men are exempt from these vulgar employments, and are reserved for war, hunting, sports, and devout observances. A very nice discrimination is ordinarily shown in this matter. This division of labour coincides with the distinction between the working and the leisure class as it appears in the higher barbarian culture. As the diversification and specialization of employments proceed, the line of demarcation so drawn comes to divide the industrial from the non-industrial employments. The man's occupation as it stands at the earlier barbarian stage is not the original out of which any appreciable portion of later industry has developed. In a later development it survives only in employments that are not classed as industrial, war, politics, sports, learning, and the priestly office. The only notable exceptions are a portion of the fishery industry and certain slight employments that are doubtfully to be classed as industry, such as the manufacture of arms, toys, and sporting goods. Virtually the whole range of industrial employments is an outgrowth of what is classed as woman's work in the primitive barbarian community. The work of the men in the lower barbarian culture is no less indispensable to the life of the group than the work done by the women. It may even be that the man's work contributes as much to the food supply and the other necessary consumption of the group. Indeed, so obvious is this productive character of the man's work that in the conventional economic writings the hunter's work is taken as the type of primitive industry. But such is not the barbarian's sense of the matter. In his own eyes he is not a labourer, and he is not to be classed with the women in this respect nor is his effort to be classed with the women's drudgery as labour or industry in such a sense as to admit of its being confounded with the latter. There is in all barbarian communities a profound sense of the disparity between man's and woman's work. His work may conduce to the maintenance of the group, 
but it is felt that it does so through an excellence and an efficacy of a kind that cannot without derogation be compared with the uneventful diligence of the women at a farther step backward in the cultural scale among savage groups the differentiation of employments is still less elaborate and the invidious distinction between classes and employments is less consistent and less rigorous unequivocal instances of a primitive savage culture are hard to find few of these groups or communities that are classed as savage show no traces of regression from a more advanced cultural stage but there are groups some of them apparently not the result of retrogression which show the traits of primitive savagery with some fidelity their culture differs from that of the barbarian communities in the absence of a leisure class and the absence in great measure of the animus or spiritual attitude on which the institution of a leisure class rests these communities of primitive savages in which there is no hierarchy of economic classes make up but a small and inconspicuous fraction of the human race as good an instance of this phase of culture as may be had is afforded by the tribes of the andamans or by the todas of the nilgiri hills the scheme of life of these groups at the time of their earliest contact with europeans seems to have been nearly typical so far as regards the absence of a leisure class as a further instance might be cited the ainu of yezo and more doubtfully also some bushmen at eskimo groups some pueblo communities are less confidently to be included in the same class most if not all of the communities here cited may well be cases of degeneration from a higher barbarism rather than bearers of a culture that has never risen above its present level if so they are for the present purpose to be taken with the allowance but they may serve none the less as evidence to the same effect as if they were really primitive populations these communities that are without a defined leisure class resemble one another also in certain other features of their social structure and manner of life they are small groups and of a simple archaic structure they are commonly peaceable and sedentary they are poor and individual ownership is not a dominant feature of their economic system at the same time it does not follow that these are the smallest of existing communities or that their social structure is in all respects the least differentiated nor does the class necessarily include all primitive communities which have no defined system of individual ownership but it is to be noted that the class seems to include the most peaceable perhaps all the characteristically peaceable primitive groups of men indeed the most notable trait common to members of such communities is a certain amiable inefficiency when confronted with force or fraud the evidence afforded by the usages and cultural traits of communities at a low stage of development indicates that the institution of a leisure class has emerged gradually during the transition from primitive savagery to barbarism or more precisely during the transition from a peaceable to a consistently warlike habit of life the conditions apparently necessary to its emergence in a consistent form are one the community must be of a predatory habit of life war or the hunting of large game or both that is to say the men who constitute the inchoate leisure class in these cases must be habituated to the infliction of injury by force and stratagem two subsistence must be obtainable on sufficiently easy terms to admit of the exemption of a considerable portion of the community from steady application to a routine of labor the institution of leisure class is the outgrowth of an early discrimination between employments according to which some employments are worthy and others unworthy 
Under this ancient distinction the worthy employments are those which may be classed as exploit. Unworthy are those necessary everyday employments into which no appreciable element of exploit enters. This distinction has but little obvious significance in a modern industrial community, and it has, therefore, received but slight attention at the hands of economic writers. When viewed in the light of that modern common sense which has guided economic discussion, it seems formal and insubstantial. But it persists with great tenacity as a commonplace preconception, even in modern life, as is shown, for instance, by our habitual aversion to menial employments. It is a distinction of a personal kind, of superiority and inferiority. In the earlier stages of culture, when the personal force of the individual counted more immediately and obviously in shaping the course of events, the element of exploit counted for more in the everyday scheme of life. Interest centered about this fact to a greater degree. Consequently, a distinction proceeding on this ground seemed more imperative and more definitive then than is the case today. As a fact in the sequence of development, therefore, the distinction is a substantial one, and rests on sufficiently valid and cogent grounds. The ground on which the discrimination between facts is habitually made changes as the interest from which the facts are habitually viewed changes. Those features of the facts at hand are salient and substantial, upon which the dominant interest of the time throws its light. Any given ground of distinction will seem insubstantial to any one who habitually apprehends the facts in question from a different point of view, and values them for a different purpose. The habit of distinguishing and classifying the various purposes and directions of activity prevails of necessity always and everywhere, for it is indispensable in reaching a working theory or scheme of life. The particular point of view, or the particular characteristic that is pitched upon as definitive in the classification of the facts of life, depends upon the interest from which discrimination of the facts is sought. The grounds of discrimination and the norm of procedure in classifying the facts, therefore, progressively change as the growth of culture proceeds, for the end for which the facts of life are apprehended changes, and the point of view consequently changes also so that what are recognized as the salient and decisive features of a class of activities or of a social class at one stage of culture will not retain the same relative importance for the purposes of classification at any subsequent stage but the change of standards and points of view is gradual only and it seldom results in the subversion or entire suppression of a standpoint once accepted a distinction is still habitually made between industrial and non-industrial occupations, and this modern distinction is a transmuted form of the barbarian distinction between exploit and drudgery. Such employments as warfare, politics, public worship, and public merrymaking are felt, in the popular apprehension, to differ intrinsically from the labor that has to do with elaborating the material means of life. The precise line of demarcation is not the same as it was in the early barbarian scheme, but the broad distinction has not fallen into disuse. The tacit, common-sense distinction of today is, in effect, that any effort is to be accounted industrial only so far as its ultimate purpose is the utilization of non-human things. The coercive utilization of man by man is not felt to be an industrial function but all effort directed to enhance human life by taking advantage of the non-human environment is classed together as industrial activity. 
by the economists who have best retained and adapted the classical tradition, man's power over nature is currently postulated as the characteristic fact of industrial productivity. This industrial power over nature is taken to include man's power over the life of the beasts and over all the elemental forces. A line is in this way drawn between mankind and brute creation. In other times, and among men imbued with a different body of preconceptions, this line is not drawn precisely as we draw it today. In the savage or the barbarian scheme of life it is drawn in a different place and in another way. In all communities under the barbarian culture there is an alert and pervading sense of antithesis between two comprehensive groups of phenomena, in one of which barbarian man includes himself, and in the other his victual. There is a felt antithesis between economic and non-economic phenomena, but it is not conceived in a modern fashion. It lies not between man and brute creation, but between animate and inert things. End of first part of chapter 1